to fully appreciate the tension present at the opening verses of our story. Uh, we have to remember where we left things last week. Um, the final verse of our story last week recorded the Pharaoh's announcement to the entire Egyptian nation that the law of the land now dictated the execution of any and every male child birthed by a Hebrew woman. The Pharaoh had tried to secretly enlist Hebrew midwives to inflict this genocide, but the Hebrew midwives, led by Shifra and Pua, uh, disobeyed the Pharaoh's command, and so Pharaoh went public with his evil plan and decreed that all subjects were now responsible for participating in this genocide. Anyone knowing of a Hebrew male newborn must throw that baby into the Nile River to drown. With this, as the lead up to this morning's verses, think of the impact it would have to hear this part of the story for the first time. Now a man of the house of Levi, which is one of the tribes of Israel, so one of the, the families uh, that is at risk, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Notice we don't even hear anything uh, about the people themselves, their names, uh, other than the fact that it's a husband and wife who are Israelites from the tribe of Levi who have just given birth to a son. And this sets up the tension. A Hebrew woman has just given birth to a male baby. We know that the law of the land says that the baby must be thrown into the Nile to die. So as we begin this story, the question is what's going to happen? And once again, like we did last week, we hear the story of an Israelite woman who courageously disobeys the king of Egypt. We hear that she hid the baby for three months. Uh, sadly, that only works for a short time. Verse 3. But when she could admit, hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it, the three-month-old baby boy, in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Commentators are kind of uh, at odds in terms of the mother's intention for this action. Gerald Jensen uh, wonders, is this an act of abandonment in despair? Or is it a desperate commitment of the child into God's hands when all her own resources are at an end. There's also another uh, commentator that, that thinks that this is only a temporary thing, that when they suspect that the, the soldiers, the Egyptian soldiers, are in the area, 
they put the baby in the basket and hide it in the reeds, and then when the soldiers are gone, they bring it back to the house. There's, there's, so there's no clear intention for this action, and it's important for us to acknowledge that we don't have any idea of what the mother expected would happen. Neither the mother nor the narrator give us any indication of what the expectation was. So I want us to pause for a moment right here. Pretend that you don't know where this story is going. What would be going through your mind? What would be going through our own mind and heart if this were us? We've just given birth as a family or whatever part of the family we are to this infant, like my granddaughter that's just making noise. And we know that the, 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 the law, the civil authorities want that baby killed. And it's getting to the point where it's hard to keep a baby quiet. What would go through your mind and your heart in that situation? When we read in verse 4, after she makes this, the mom makes the basket of reeds and tar, uh, his sister, the little baby boy's sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And again, it's important for us to remember that at this point in real time for this story, no one knows what's going to happen. She's simply there as a witness, probably because the mother couldn't bear to stay and, and find out. This was a horrible situation for this family to be in and especially for this mother. Even the next event in this story isn't inevitably a good thing. We hear the Pharaoh's daughter went to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. The natural expectation would be that as the Pharaoh's daughter, she would obey her father's command and have one of her servants drown the baby. She's the daughter of the man who wanted all of these babies killed. But here is where everything changes. Not only for the baby, or even just the family, but for the entire Israelite tribe as a whole people group, and because of what God did for the world through the, the Israelites, it is truly a change for the whole world. What happens next? Verse, verse 6. The Pharaoh's daughter opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies. She knew it had been abandoned out of despair or for some reason. And she had compassion 
when she hears the crying. It could so easily have been entirely different. But for some reason, she has compassion. In fact, we know that her compassion was so great that she ends up adopting the baby into her own family, into the Pharaoh's court. So far in this story, we've had a mother who creatively disobeys an evil law and protects her child from execution. And a woman of power and privilege who allows compassion to override cruelty. Then we get this brilliant action from a young Hebrew girl. Verse 7, the sister who was watching what was going on asked the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? I mean, the intelligence and creativity and courage that she musters up is astounding. The princess certainly seems impressed. Princess says, yes, go. This leads to an entirely unforeseeable outcome for this baby boy and the mother. This, this continues, the princess says, yes, go. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to the baby's mother, take this baby and nurse him for me. Oh, thank you. And I will pay you. So the woman took the woman, his mother, his actual biological mother, took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Uh, in the time, uh, it was, the baby was probably three, anywhere from three to four years old. So she got to nurse and, and take care of her own child uh, who, had supposed, who was supposed to have been uh, executed at birth. She got to nurse and, and raise him for three or four years. Of course, then we finally discover, the way the story's told, this uh, so far unnamed person, um, why this story is being told at all. The very last part of our story for this morning is the Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses saying, I drew him from the water. How much of this story happened as written? We don't know for sure. There's actually other stories told uh, even before this, the birth of Moses about a, another semi-demi-god being put in a basket on the river and being discovered. We don't know exactly what really happened. But we do know this. This story reminds us that it took a series of extraordinary events and actions for a male Israelite baby boy of this time to end up not only living, but being raised in the court of the king who wanted all of Moses' kind killed. 
John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, is the archetype of many commentators in seeing the hand of God at work in the events of both uh, the events that both saved the life of Moses and that led to his unique upbringing. Calvin asserts, there can be no question but that God's secret providence brought the king's daughter to the river, who had the courage to take up the child and to have it nursed, and that God too influenced her it influenced her mind to the kind of act uh, of saving its life. In a word, that God controlled the whole matter. That's Calvin. For Calvin, this story is just a, a more explicit telling, an example of what he believes is true of God always. For Calvin, all the events of life, of every human life, all the events are the work of the providence of God. I do also believe that God works within this particular story to create providential events. However, I do think it's also important for us to acknowledge several other truths as well. Firstly, this was an extraordinarily important event. And in other words, not something that happens every day and not something that should be expected to happen every day. In Moses, God is beginning a world-altering new chapter in the history of human beings. Significant clues to this truth are revealed in two little words that are used in our story. The first comes in that slightly peculiar description in verse 2. Uh, that the, the mother, when she became pregnant, gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. What? If he hadn't been a fine child, she wouldn't have hid him? It's, it's an odd little thing. Until we understand, as uh, I'll let Peter Enns explain it, it might not be obvious by calling Moses fine, but calling, using that word in particular, is another echo of the creation story. Fine is the Hebrew word tov, found seven times in Genesis 1, where it is translated as good. In fact, we read that Moses' mother saw that he was good, which echoes God saw that it was good. After each of the six days of creation, the mother's words are not a random physical description of Moses, but a not-so-subtle hint that this boy and his journey will be tied to the story of creation. Enns then points out another very definite Genesis connection in the description of that little papyrus basket that Moses' mother puts the baby in. He writes that the word for basket here, teva, used here in both verses 3 and 5, is the same word that appears 26 times as ark in the story of Noah. And here's the thing. That Hebrew word is found nowhere else in the entire Old Testament. Just that story of Noah and this story of Moses. 
Noah and his family are kept safe in the ark, basket, teva, uh, and through them, life on earth will begin anew once the water subsides. Similarly, Moses is kept safe from hostile waters in an ark basket, and like Noah, Moses is the focal person for a new beginning for a new people. The story of Moses, beginning at his birth, is not filler, but a flare bursting overhead to help us see the big picture. Moses' birth and the story of Exodus as a whole are wrapped up in a much larger story of new beginnings. So it is important for us to consider the gravity of this story when we're trying to understand how God works in the world. We also need to consider the many ways in which people in this story took significant actions to make things happen. Peter Friedheim is particularly good at highlighting this point. He writes, the narrator again shows how women play an important leadership role in these matters. The women so far noted are actively engaged on the side of life against a ruler who has shown himself to be capable of considerable brutality. Bucking a male-dominated system, they risk their lives for the sake of life. Freedom notes that um, this has been a highlighted characteristic of five different women so far in just the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. We saw that with Shifra and Pua uh, in chapter one, and he continues, Freedom, um, the choice of, of the five women in chapters one and two entails much risk and vulnerability for God. That risk is real. For these persons could fail and God would have to begin again, but they prove highly effective against the ruthless forms of systemic power. And God is not the subject of a single verb in their various undertakings. They took action. Believing in the providence of God never relieves us of our responsibility as human beings to work to make things right. Even John Calvin agrees with this. He writes about this particular story. It is a perversion to make the providence of God an excuse for negligence and sloth. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, believing in the providence of God does not mean believing that God always fixes everything. All we have to do is think about all the other Hebrew male babies that weren't adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. Even for Moses' mother, she had to give up her son at age three or four. Ultimately, in my understanding, at least so far on this journey, God's providence doesn't fix everything, but it does invite hope despite anything. It doesn't fit everything, but it invites hope despite anything. Did I say anything twice? It doesn't fix everything. 
invites hope despite anything. And that's why I asked us to pause at that moment in the story when the mother has put her little three-month-old baby into a papyrus basket and placed it in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Nothing about that situation invited hope for that baby or her. And yet he lived and she got to raise him at least for the first few years. And then he wound up living in the, uh, the Pharaoh's palace. No one could have imagined that outcome from the original circumstances, except God. In fact, Peter Enns again uh, believes that this whole story is written to emphasize God's providence carried out ironically. Irony also highlights the unlikely outcome of specific circumstances. So Enns writes, of what import is this ironic mode? The Pharaoh's own daughter adopts a baby, brings it into his home. Of what import is this ironic mode? Most fundamentally, it is revealing of divine irony. God uses the weak, what is low and despised in the world, to shame the strong. Rather than using power as, is, as it is usually exercised in the world, God works through persons who have no obvious power. Indeed, they are unlikely candidates for the exercise of power. Hence, it may be said that the ironic mode fosters a sense of hope amid any situation in which God seems to be absent. It takes faith, he writes, it takes faith, the conviction of things not seen, to perceive that God is at work. And I believe that that is the good news of this story for us to hold on to. Believing in the providence of God does not mean that we believe God fixes everything. But it does invite us to have hope despite anything. Thanks be to God.